Can you hear me? Great. Okay, as Paul said, my name is Riley, and that is my husband, Sjöfren, and he will, he will finish us off this morning. Um, and we have been married for 10 years, which to some of you might sound like a, a lot if you're on the younger end, but to, to, to us, I feel like we're still kind of figuring it out as we go, and so just to put that out there is that we, uh, it's, it's kind of an intimidating thing. I've preached on quite a few things, but for some reason, preaching on this, on marriage, and, and uh, has, has brought me more kind of trepidation and, than, than most things that I preach on, and I think it's because we, uh, yeah, I think I'm more aware of, of, of where I fall short in this area than probably any other. Um, but one of the great joys of teaching for me is actually to sit in a text for a while. It forces me to kind of sit under it and let it speak into my life and, it, it, uh, and to kind of wrestle with it. And this is a text that sometimes that we um, can wrestle with. And, uh, but it always reveals to me what is true, beautiful, and good about who God is about what his design is. Um, and, and it's amazing that even passages like this that I've heard preached so often and, uh, and actually debated and, and had discussions around, um, it still does something um, significant in me. And so hopefully today that, uh, that you'll get a bit of that and I, we can communicate a bit of that. And, and really, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks that I've been studying, I, I found myself really overwhelmed with gratitude to God for his design, for his goodness towards me and my husband. And actually, I, I've been incredibly overwhelmed with gratitude for my husband um, and, uh, and the responsibility that he, God has given him and all husbands. You know, so often as a, as a woman and a wife, like I, I kind of get stuck on that submit, right? So often, um, and how hard that is in our culture, but it, it kind of seems sometimes a little bit unfair to me. And, and I get so focused on that that I, I actually miss what the incredible task that God is calling men to in marriage. And it's actually quite countercultural as well. We talk about submitting as being countercultural, but, but what God is instructing husbands to do is actually countercultural. Because culture tells us, all of us, men and women, that, um, that actually do what makes you feel good. Do what, you know, what is helpful, most helpful to you. Um, your best life is found in, you know, loving yourself first and putting yourself first. And that's the way that you, you know, like um, find flourishing. But God says exactly the opposite. Over and over in scripture, he tells us to put others first, to love our neighbor, to, to think first of others, and then you will find true life. You will find flourishing. And because of this, God is out actually to kill the selfishness that is so rooted in us. Because he knows that selfishness keeps us from being fully human. From being actually and living the way that we were intended to. Because we were made to be interdependent, unified people. 
where we are all looking out for the interests of others. And nothing, nothing destroys that like selfishness. And to be honest, in my life, I've found that marriage is one of the primary revealers of my own selfishness. Um, because, you know, uh, before I was married, I kind of knew that I was selfish because, you know, everybody's selfish a little bit, but I wasn't that selfish. And then I got married. And I saw the reality of my own selfishness. And let me tell you, it's, it's not very pretty. It wasn't then and it still isn't. You can ask Stephen. Well, actually, don't do that, please. <laughs> Out of honor, he might be needing to lie. So. <laughs> um, but as I've seen over the last few weeks, and really have seen in the last 10 years of marriage, that God wants to use marriage as a way for us to throw off our selfishness. And through doing that, to unify us as a couple so that we can act as a signpost for something more magnificent and so much greater than the love that Stephen and I can have for one another. So last week, Paul and Kate beautifully unpacked God's instruction for wives to submit their to their husbands and how that builds unity. And this week, Stephen and I take on the task of unpacking the reality or the responsibility of the husband. As I've said, um, that we, as we've spent time in the passage, we understand the weight of what God is calling husbands to do. And our hope is that um, husbands would not see this as a burdensome duty, but instead would have their eyes open to the delightful responsibility God invites them to. And that all of us would have our hearts open to what is true, good, and beautiful. So I'm going to just spend, uh, read uh, scripture. Um, it was, a, it was a long week in the uh, Smith household with sickness, and so um, you won't be getting many slots. So, <laughs> so you can open your Bible to uh, Ephesians 5, uh, and I'm going to read the whole text, 22 through, through 33. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything their husbands, or in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's actually quite a bit in this text. Um, I have to admit, you know, when I first, uh, Paul uh, asked if we could, I'm like, what can you actually preach? Love your wife. You know, but actually, there's quite a bit in this uh, in this text, and and we're not going to get to every detail. Um, so I'm going to spend some time highlighting a few things, and then Stephen is going to finish this off. So now, as we saw last week, the primary instruction to wives is to submit to their husbands, and on the back of that, you might think that God would instruct husbands on you know how to rule in an appropriate way, because that's kind of the, the equivalent or uh, the, the opposite. But that's actually not what the text says. There is one instruction on how husbands should treat their wives, and that is to love her. Paul writes three times for husbands to love their wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. And verse 33, however, let each one of you love your wife. Paul is making it clear that your primary duty toward your wife is to love her. And there is no condition attached. It's not if she submits, then love your wife. Or if your, if your wife loves you, love your wife. Or one of my favorites, if she doesn't nag you, love your wife. No, it says love your wife, full stop. We think of love in terms often as a transactional thing. This person makes me feel good and appreciates me, so I'll love them. Or we romanticize love. And it's about, you know, kind of that butterflies in your stomach and, you know, I feel in love. And if we don't get something out of it, a feeling or, or, or some sort of action, it must mean we don't love that person. Now, I don't want to say that those things are bad. It's amazing to have um, reciprocation in love. And, and it's really fun to have all the feelings. But... If that's all love is, then we are missing something far greater. Because remember, we are only able to love because Christ loved us. And he loved us when we were unlovable, when we didn't acknowledge or appreciate him, and actually were in active rebellion against him. This is the type of love that God calls husbands to. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a love that gives fully of yourself. This is not a love characterized by condition. You know, do this then I'll love you. No, it's a freely given for the benefit of others. For one other. You know, Jesus didn't think, you know, what will I get in return? 
What has the church done for me anyway? And thankfully, he didn't. He freely laid down his rights, his comforts, his life for another, for us. And husbands, God is calling you to love your wife that way. Verse 26 and 27 says that he might sanctify her. So he gave up his life that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her for the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, obviously, this is an incredibly beautiful picture of what Christ, through the giving of his life, has done for us, his bride. It's his incredible redemptive work. And so husbands are not able to imitate this completely. But I do think it has a very important principle for how husbands are to love their wives. Christ's goal in loving and laying his life down for us, his church, was to have relationship with his church and to see her become who she was created to be. To see her, the church, you and I in our splendor. Husbands, God has given you a wife that is uniquely gifted and talented. And you, he wants you to love her in a way that encourages and empowers her to be who God has made her. At times, this will mean sacrificing your own desires and aspirations. And this is hard. A denial of self to this degree is a hard ask. But God is working in you to make you more like him as you love your wife. This is a way, and, you are, and this is a way that you get to live out the gospel in a beautiful way towards your wife and for all to see. Husbands, you are to love your wife in a way that helps her develop into all God has created her to be. That she may become more completely herself by being married to you. Just as Christ has loved you. So next in the passage, it says, husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives as their own body. You know, aren't those, I, I love that the Bible comes with, you know, these rich words. <laughs> nourish and cherish. So the definition of nourish is to provide what is necessary for growth and health. And to cherish is to appreciate, to prize, to treasure and value. These are words that imply an intentionality. They're words that imply that you know the needs of your wife, that you know who God is making her into, that you pay attention to who she is. 
Husbands, are you loving your wife in a way that she is treasured and valued? Not only for what she does, but for who she is and for who you see she can be. Are you giving your life up in a way that promotes the growth and flourishing of your wife? So friends, I, see, I hope you're seeing the weight of what God is instructing husbands to. This is by no means easy, and I recognize that. And in a few minutes, Stephen's going to come up and share a little bit more and, and tease some of this out a little bit more. But first, before I hand over to him, I just want to, I just have a couple things to say to wives. I have something to say to wives and then to women in general. Wives, just as husbands don't get to demand submission, we don't get to demand our husbands love like this. I don't mean that we can't share with them, you know, how we're feeling and, and what might be helpful. There, that, that is a good, healthy marriage. But there is a big difference between a mutual discussion on how um, both can improve we live out our marriage and demanding and nagging our husbands do better. From experience, that doesn't work. <laughs> And one of the biggest things that God has shown me as I have spent time in this passage, the whole passage, is that really the instruction for me to submit, submit to Stephen is more about, is more for my good than Stephen's. Because it means God is using me, is, because God is using it as a means to free me of my own selfishness and forming me into the likeness of Christ. And wives, the same is true about husbands and the instruction for them to love their wives. God is at work in your husband, so trust the Holy Spirit to do as he sees fit. The self-denial God is calling husbands to is hard, and it is impossible apart from the in-working, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Through this, God is calling husbands to an incredible dependency on himself. Through this, God is, is, your, is, is calling for dependency. And your husband will never love you per perfectly. Let me say that again. Your husband will never love you perfectly. Only Jesus can. Don't look to your husband to fulfill your needs. Look to Jesus. I, I find that often in my own life when I'm frustrated at Stephen for not loving me in the way that I, I want or that I think that I need, I'm actually looking to him to do something that only Jesus can. And so I do recognize um, by saying that, that, that I am in a marriage with a man that actually does this really well. And so there's women possibly in here that, that that is not the case. But the reality is, if your husband is absent, whether physically or emotionally, 
Jesus can still meet those needs, and he's calling to meet, you to come to him to meet those needs. Marriage can be a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is also difficult because it asks both husband and wife to die to self. And failure to live out marriage as God has instructed for husbands and wives is actually inevitable. Disappointment will happen. <clears throat> but that should lead us both to depend on and to find perfect love from the only one that has proven he can't fail. And then to women in general, I just want to revisit something that Kate said last week. She mentioned the attitude towards women in culture at the time. And she mentioned um, that actually this was, this was quite freeing to women. Because for the most part, women were seen as inferior, unintelligent, and really given little freedom. During this time, husbands had very few obligations beyond providing food and, and shelter. And beyond that, men could pretty much do as they wished. So Paul's instructions to husbands was incredibly radical. He is highlighting the equal value that women play before God. And he calls husbands to give it their own lives in a way that actively and intentionally promotes the well-being and flourishing of their, their wives. And too often because of twisted interpretations and, and uh, horrible application of this idea of, of men as, as, as uh, the heads of the family and women to submit, Women have been hurt and abused. And because of this, have questioned if God actually values them and if he can be trusted. And so one of my prayers as we've been leading up to this is that women here today would see that God deeply values you through what he calls men to do. And that he is actually for you and that he is trustworthy. So if you know, I'm really terrible at transitions. So um, I'm going to let Siofan come up now. Okay, and that's my wife. So proud. So I, I hope I can stand for, for 20 minutes. Riley has been under the weather for, for about a week and a half, and then I got it on Wednesday. So always the latecomer, uh, a latecomer as we will hear quite soon. So I just want to go and unpack a little bit of husbands love your wife. Um, I just want to go a bit deeper there. If we think about it, if, as men, we would say, okay, we can, we can do this. Uh, husbands love your wife. 
maybe we can go on a, on a date once a month. Uh, we can f buy flowers for Mother's, Mother's Day. And then we're there. <laughs> you know, all good. It's not quite, eh? not so easy. But then, then what does it say next? As Christ left the church and we are out. We were thinking we are doing a park run on Saturday. And now we need to sprint at the speed of a Zane Bolt for a marathon. It's impossible. So we're out. So how do we go from here? As you guys knew, I, I'm an Afrikaans guy, as you can hear from the bad accent. Uh, grew up in a little town in Rustenburg in a mining field, and I'm still in the mining business. Um, and we had three services on Sundays. The first service was 8.30. Those were for the people from the Iwutais, the the older people that wants the hymns and the psalms and the or organ music. And then 10.30 it was a bit more relaxed, but still quite formal. And in the evenings, <coughs> it was really, really more informal. Even the Didurmi came off from the pulpit and he would stand here and he would talk to, to the congregation. And it was a time of more singing with guitar and songs and stuff like that. And there was also time for sharing. Um, when I was in high school, the church also made some beautiful decorations, the free crosses in the back. And it was one of those evenings that I was sitting there, I was about 17, 18, so roughly 30 years ago. Uh, you can do the maths. Um, that I was sitting there, and I don't know if was the journey was saying something, or it was the crosses that was there, and I just had this moment, I was like, Jesus, what have you done? You know, you have given your life for us. As Riley has explained, not by even knowing us, although he knew us, you know, in some way, we know that's the truth, but he didn't know us. And furthermore, even for the murderer on his right or his left, I, I'm never quite sure, he did the same. And I was just struck, struck by this. It's like, it sort of realized on me, and, and then there was time for, for sharing, and I, I just got up and I started sharing, and I went all berserk, how crazy that is, and Germany was thinking, maybe what, what happened? Have you not going to catechisms your life? You should know this by now, but it was just new for me, and real. And I once I was preparing for this, I realized a lot of us as Christians, we are stuck there. We are stuck with a God who has died for us on the cross and paid for our sins. And, and that is where our gospel ends. And that's not quite, quite where it ends. Because God obviously just didn't die. He rose from the dead again. He's alive. We are worshiping a God that is alive. He's not dead. If we are stuck with a God that has just died for our sins, it's a bit like a guy going on a trip. 
I don't know you guys have ever gone on a train trip, but it's some of the best because you're not high in the sky, you can actually see what's going on, you're not driving, you're sitting in a small compartment with another somebody next to you, you can talk, you can look at the nature going past you. But it's like Jesus giving us a ticket on a train trip, and when we get on this train and we are somewhere on our way to heaven. Because that is what we believe. We've got a ticket. Jesus has given it us, gave it to us by dying on the cross, and we're on a stick train trip to heaven. And every now and again the train conductor will come and he say, Oh yeah, your ticket is still valid. And then <laughs> then you go and you continue on. And it gets quite boring because you don't quite understand what's happening and you sit there by yourself on your way to heaven. And, um, and then you go past Pretoria and there's Valhalla and you, and you don't get off. You know, you continue to heaven. And that's how we imagine it. But I think our life with Jesus is a bit different because Jesus didn't only die, he rose again. So he is coming on the trip with you. As you approach the train, Jesus is standing next to you and the train conductor is just like, whoa, you with this guy, you know? And everybody is just looking at you as if you somewhere somebody else. And Jesus tells you how that little plant grow that we've seen there and how that, that mountains form and it's just the most amazing trip. Because Possibly, as you walked into that train, you probably would have not seen and recognized the train's name, but this is called heaven, not the train to heaven, but heaven. And that's not probably quite right, so please, Jono and Stefan. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying is we are, we are, we have a God that's alive and heaven is Him, ultimately, in Him and through Him, not only by Him. So how does this work with marriage, um, what Riley has preached on? As I just said, I've been, I'm 47 now, those that not quite managed the, the maths yet. <clears throat> and the one thing that I've been really privileged in my life is that in a few occasions, or a lot of occasions actually, when I pray for somebody, sometimes, I can really feel like God is speaking to this person through me. God is touching this person in a special way, not because of what I'm saying, but just because God is there and He's using the, He's laying words in my mouth to say to that person. And it's happened, and I was like, "Wow, God is using me! Great!" You know, like you, you can have that attitude. And a few years ago, I was like thinking, "But when this is happening, what does a God typically say? You know, what is the Father?" which I believe speaking through me in those situations. And when I thought about it, it's like, it's very similar. It's like, you are loved, 
you're my son or my daughter, you have identity in me. And that is what God does in marriage. That's why God uses this image of marriage is to tell us that our identity is in Him. It's like me walking with Jesus into the train and this train conductor brings the nicest food, even though I'm in a trans-Siberian train in Russia. I have fresh fruit, nice salmon, and it's just the best. So I, our identity is based in God. And what He does through marriage, and He does through all these Father, Son, all these images that He created, is to give us identity. Yeah, so God is using the husband to, sorry, for the sniffing, to establish identity in a wife. So, if you've done the maths a bit more, you would realize that Stefan is 47. Riley just said we almost married 10 years, which means uh, Stefan got married very late in his life, which is true. Which is true. For various reasons, I was traveling a lot for work at a time. But also, before I met Riley, has been in a lot of other relationships. I can at least count three or four without oversharing, semi-serious relationships that for a long time I was dating somebody that I thought was great, it's, she's this and she does that, and therefore mathematically, and if you think like a science, why can't it work? And I would go crazy, like, why doesn't it work? And my mom's like, why is you not married? Why don't I have grandchildren? <laughs> And my, and my grandmother would call my mother and say, Is Stefan gay? <laughs> and, yeah, so, so there was some pressure there. I always thought my mom, you know, if initially it was 35, if, I, if I'm 35 and I don't find a wife, I'll probably go to Siberia and get one there. And then 35 come and go, and I said, well, let's just move it to 40, and then Riley came along. But what was the difference? What was the difference when Riley came? I mean, you all can see the difference, but for me, for me, it was, we were together for probably three weeks, four weeks. And I had this knowing that I know, that I know, that I know that she's my wife. And I never had that before. And that's the difference. You see, God is the one who has brought love in this world. It's the love between God the Father and God the Son that has established this concept of love. And God has created the world and 
images of that throughout time to show that. And I believe for a husband to really love his wife, that assurance of what love is needs to be established in God. It's not something that I can say, Riley has done this and that, and therefore I love her. There needs to be a point that I know because marriage is hard and difficult, that I love her because God has said so. God has given me the peace that I love this woman. And that's it. There's no questions asked afterwards. Marriage gets tough. As a husband, you don't want to love your wife. Um, yeah, there's times that it's really hard. So I'm not going to go into details. But we all can imagine that. And that's a time that you need to know that you love your wife, especially. What is the one thing that we as husbands, at least for me, needs to not do, but give our wives to establish them? It's this thing. It's not knowing the five love languages or how many there are. Those, those are helpful and those are needed, but those are the parkrun ones that we've referred to earlier. God wants us to love our wife so that she can grow an identity, that she can see something of how Christ loved the church in my love for her. So it's about identity. It's about that. So the one thing our wives need to know from us is that we are loved. They are not we are. We are loved, of course, but they are loved. Because that is how we can create a sanctity for her, sanctify her by creating a space of trust for her. Because they need to know that it doesn't matter how much the nagging is or not is, how good she can cook like my mom or not, or whatever else we desire as men. Our love needs to be constant, never changing, rooted deeply. So that's, that's what I wanted to say on that. So, we, we can thank God for His Word. I was last week at Christ Church. One of my friends was, I don't know what, ordained as a deacon there and stuff. So, it was like, in the end, like, this is the Word of God. And I was like, oh, this is, this is nice. <laughs> so, I'm going to end there. <clears throat> so, I'm going to pray. So, so, let us pray. Lord, we, we thank you that, that you are love. We, we thank you that you love us.
we thank you that apart from this, everything is but rubbish, Lord. Will you reveal ourselves that love for us so that we can love others? Amen.